Staff warns ministers not to expect too much from a cut-down military. Britain calls for restraint in Gaza. Hamas and other armed groups in Gaza should cease attacks against Israel immediately. I also strongly urge Israel to do its utmost to reduce tension. And after the Petraeus scandal, we look at America's relationship with its generals. The Chief of Defence Staff has warned he's not able to do everything ministers would like in the wake of the government's defence cuts. General Sir David Richards gave a lecture at Oxford University last week. It was supposed to be off the record, but his comments have found their way into today's Daily Telegraph newspaper. The Chief of the Defence Staff said ministers' demands hadn't been revised to correspond with the reduced size of the armed forces following the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Clark, they seem to be pretty frank, those comments. How significant are they? Yes, I mean, um, I wasn't, the, the lecture was actually last night, and I wasn't at the lecture, I was somewhere else last night, but a couple of my staff were there, and they said that these comments in the Daily Telegraph were, these were things that were said, but they don't reflect what the lecture was actually about, so they say they, they genuinely seem to have been taken out of context. On the other hand, the CDS is pretty clear, I think, that defence has been under the lash, um, not just uh, in terms of expenditure cuts, but the fact that the successive governments have quite big ambitions for defence, and I think it's no secret really that the defense establishment the military establishment do feel that they're being as it were you know run hot like a car um without oil being put into the engine block and sooner or later that will seize up and i think that reflects i mean what he was saying albeit out of context reflects i think the genuine um worry among the military establishment that there will come a point where it something will either go badly wrong um, or they will simply have to say, Minister, we just can't do this. We just don't have the facilities. They, they worry that that point is getting closer. Christopher Lee, is the sentiment behind all of this, the fact that um, the military feel they're being asked to go beyond what was even set out uh, in the Defence Review with less? Yeah, I didn't hear him say this when he was CGS in the Defence Review, at the beginning of the Defence Review, um, nor... Uh, the uh, Air Marshal Stuart then, who was the CDS. But is it the fact that at the time that seemed all right, but they're actually being asked no, to do more no, now? No, it didn't seem all right at the time. That was the problem. And yes, they are asked to do different things now. And you've always got, in defence, you've always got bolt-ons. In other words, every time there's a, a year passes, you've got an anxiety, for example. What's happening in Syria now? Should you get involved in that because of... Uh, uh, of of the, um, I suppose, because of Turkey. But put it in some sort of context. Um, <clears throat> he was saying, for example, that the Royal Navy's got six destroyers afloat and 13 frigates, uh, and it's probably got more admirals than that. But you can't actually uh, sort of build a naval policy on that size of, of, of fleet broken into, say, three flotillas. You can't do it. And that's what he was really saying last night. Now, let me say, this morning, and I've heard him say this a couple of times now, this morning, what he is saying is that, oh, if ministers say uh, to us, can we actually do this? He usually says, well, you know, with what? But yes, we can get on and do it. Um, but there's something bigger behind all this. 
in 2014, when everybody's coming out of Afghanistan, and 2014-15, when there's a general election on, there is a fear in the services, and quite rightly there's a fear in the services, that they're going to be hit for even more cuts. And that's what's behind this, because it's the next stage. Forget this stage, it's the next stage they should be worrying about. And he's worrying about it. Professor Clark, do you believe that it's a preemptive strike? Well, yes, it's not a preemptive leak because I know that the CDS's office genuinely are really angry about this and, and uh, about the fact that it's leaked and it's not doing Oxford uh, any good either. So it isn't that this was somehow a political manoeuvre. This is a genuine leak. Somebody you know, sat with a tape recorder of some sort or recorded and gave it to the Telegraph and they're also very angry at the Telegraph for, for running it. Um, but as Christopher said, there's no question, I think, that the military feel that, the, that life will only get tougher for them, not easier. And although in public, of course, they're servants of the government and if the government tells them to do something they will say they may say privately we don't think this can be easily done but in public they'll say we'll do the best we can and that was a classic case over libya i mean it is widely believed that the cds general sir david richards actually advised against involvement in libya and the prime minister said we're going to do it anyway and so he said okay well we'll do what we can and it, it was even though that was a relatively small operation it got us pretty close to the wire on in several respects several of the facilities and the things we were using um were were at the limit of what we could do with them given that the afghanistan commitment yeah and 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 also michael it's not just we're not talking about big operations are we no i mean for example you, you we're saying that we will send some advisors maybe just a handful but some advisors down to mali mm. to help with the ECOWAS, the you know the west african uh, states that are going into mali and helping that we could we're going to have people in fact we've probably got people now on the jordanian border not that many but we've got them we'll have a pocket full let's say on the on the turkish border now every time you send let us say 50 guys down there you've probably got to ha earmark another 120 that are going to replace them all the time that also interrupts a very, very tight schedule for the major operations that you have. Uh, Professor Clark, on Afghanistan, he criticised the failure to find a political resolution, talking mm. about this collective failing to exploit the opportunity the military gained. Yeah. Why do yeah. you think he said that? I mean, and that's naught but the truth in the sense that the, the military feel, not just our military, but the whole ISAF operation in, in Afghanistan feels that, you know, they, they've made the effort, they're expending the blood and treasure to create space for a political solution, and it's not happening. Um, on the other hand, it's not likely to happen in Afghanistan until the 11th hour. I mean, I have a phrase, I call it political cigarette papers, mm. which is that, you know, battles often don't take place in Afghanistan because the night before a battle, both sides exchange little messages on cigarette papers and in the morning some forces have evaporated and others have changed size it never happens and i suspect that as we get towards 2014 but not yet a lot of political cigarette papers will be exchanged and, the, and there will be an afghan solution but the frustration for our guys is that we can't negotiate there's nobody to, to talk to because afghans in the in the way that they do are not going on the record with what they will and won't do, and they certainly won't go to Doha or Geneva to sit around a conference table for six months to negotiate a settlement. It will come down to political cigarette papers. And the frustration of the military is getting closer and closer to 2014 with the worry that they, will, that they might be leaving behind a vacuum. Now, I don't think they will, but I can't prove it. It's just an instinct, if you like, with, and drawn from Afghan history. But it, it will go down to the wire, and it will be pretty unnerving as we go through through later 2013, early 2014, and still there doesn't seem to be a political settlement. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Chabot.
Still to come, members of the UN Security Council held an emergency session to discuss the latest violence in Gaza and the rise and fall of David Petraeus, the love-hate relationship between America and its generals. This is BFBS. Sit rep. This week, a Royal Navy submariner admitted meeting two people he thought were Russian secret agents to discuss the movements of British nuclear submarines. 30-year-old Petty Officer Edward Deveni from Northern Ireland pleaded guilty to gathering details of encryption programmes and misconduct in a public office. He contacted a foreign embassy to try to pass to Russia encrypto-material programmes used to encrypt secret information and information linked to the operation of HMS Trafalgar and to nuclear submarines but the two people he eventually met with were from British secret services well we're joined now by Professor Eric Grove from the University of Salford hello uh, hello and um, it sounds like something from the the old Cold War era were you surprised to hear about this well at one level yes I mean submariners are instinctively secretive people I mean it's only now that we know that uh, uh, HMS Conqueror was engaged in a very interesting mission just after the Falklands War, Operation Barmaid, it was called, uh, grabbing uh, a towed array from a, a Polish uh, intelligence-gathering ship. And the Submariners kept very quiet about that. Many of the people involved are friends of mine, and they never mentioned it to me at all. Mm. And that's the natural way Submariners operate. They're very, very, very secretive, sometimes perhaps even too much. And here we have a Submariner, a petty officer, an upwardly mobile p person, apparently. He'd been paid through his degree. He was, uh, he was slated for officer um, a promotion. But despite that, he appears to have been, I think, something of a fantasist. Perhaps he should have been a lecturer. He wanted to communicate the knowledge he had to other people. Uh, and, so, and, and, he, and so he made a rather clumsy attempt to do that with some pretty sensitive material that would, I think, have had a, a compromising effect if it had uh, got over, over to the Russians. Um, and he was relatively easily, I think, picked off before he could do too much damage by MI5. And just how interested are the Russians still in our submarines? Very. Uh, I mean, the, we, we, we don't like talking about it, but uh, I would be very surprised if British submarines do, don't spend a significant amount of time having a look at what the Russians do. The Russians do the same to us. In fact, uh, perhaps, it's, perhaps Cold War might, might be too strong a term, but on the other hand, there is still uh, a significant uh, certain amount of manoeuvring that takes place between the Russians and ourselves and other NATO countries, both uh, under the sea and in the air. The under the sea bit can be kept covert. It's quite well known, though, that Russian submarines have been pretty active in recent years, uh, almost like back to the good old days. And uh, I think that, or bad old days. The good uh, old days. <laughs> I, I like your turn of phrase. Or the bad old days. Yes. And, uh, and so uh, th this covert submarine activity has been going on in Russian waters throughout the post-Cold War period. The Russians would obviously be rather interested uh, in how our submarines operate. They would be interested to break into the codes. They would be interested in any kind of details on the operation of submarines, because submarines are essentially covert. Um, and this gentleman seems to have thought they would be. Perhaps he thought he could get some money out of it, or just, as I say, given the fact he's something like 40 tweets a day revealing details of British nuclear capabilities capabilities and operational duties. I was thinking I might, I might possibly try, try and get his tweet number so I might find out something interesting. Christopher, um, how often does this kind of thing go on and is it is it successful? Well, it's not, it, doesn't go, it doesn't go on that, um, that often, but I mean, there, there are cases always, uh, for example, of uh, uh, the Russians being approached 
used to be the Soviet Union embassy being approached, there was a man called Boris Mozitsky, uh, who was the, the uh, this, uh, Soviet naval, uh, naval attaché. In fact, he was a member of the GRU, naval Russian Naval Intelligence. And we were sitting there one day, and he said, I reckon... I reckon, he was in the United Nations by then, he said, I reckon I'm approached about once a month by people who say, I've got some information, maybe you, you'd, you'd like to hear it. The point was, I, I said, well, why do they do it? And he said, I don't know. He said, but quite often we turn over somebody to your intelligence services because sometimes we simply don't want to get involved. All right, Professor Eric Grove from the University of Salford, thank you very much for your time today. Christopher, thank stay you. with us. Could Israel and Hamas be about to go to war in Gaza? Tensions between the two have reached new heights after yesterday an Israeli airstrike targeted and killed the military leader of the militant Palestinian organisation Ahmad al-Jabari, a target described as Israel's equivalent of bin Laden. Israel says it was defending its people after several days of rocket fire. Hamas says that they've opened the gates of hell. Britain's called for restraint. Here's the Foreign Secretary, William Hague. Hamas and other armed groups in Gaza should cease attacks against Israel immediately. And I call on those in the region with influence over Hamas to use that influence to bring about an end to the attacks. I also strongly urge Israel to do its utmost to reduce tension, to avoid civilian casualties and to increase the prospects for both sides to live in peace. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Um, how dangerous is this situation? I think it's quite dangerous, um, not just because of the escalation in violence, um, but because of what lies behind it. Uh, I mean, why did the Israelis move now to assassinate al-Jabri? Um, uh, Netanyahu is thinking about the timing of this. It may be connected to the fact that um, uh, the, uh, the second Obama administration will take a different view of Israel, and that, in a sense, will start to have some effect probably from, from next year. It is also the case that the Iranian crisis is, uh, comes and goes, and the Israelis are very um, sensitive about that. And, uh, I mean, of course, there have been 70-odd rocket attacks into Israel in the last week, and they injured three people. So that's, not, that's nothing that the, uh, to, to be proud of, but it's no worse than it has been in many other periods. So the question is, why did Netanyahu choose to deliberately escalate what was a nasty situation now as opposed to any other time? And having escalated it, <clears throat> can he keep control of it? Because whenever the Israelis have found themselves drawn into an attack on Gaza, as, as with the uh, attacks into Lebanon, it turns out the Israeli forces are really not as good as they think they are. And they get pulled in to attacks which, which have an ef the effect politically of going very, very wrong. So Netanyahu is, is being very, um, very, it's very risky behaviour from his point of view. And in terms of the uh, Hamas leadership, uh, they were almost, it was entirely likely that they would react to uh, the, the death of uh, their leader. And how, and, and they're not in full control of their forces. I mean, at least the Israelis are in control of their forces, but uh, Hamas are not. So I suspect this will get quite a lot worse over the next few days. Christopher Lee, everyone is wondering if, if there's going to be a repeat of the 2008-2009 incursion into Gaza. How likely is that? Could happen. I mean, the, um, uh, on that case four years ago, uh, 1,200 people died. And these, as Mike says, the, the Israeli armed services uh, didn't really get a good report on it. You've got to remember about this target, um, Al-Jabari was uh, terribly important 
uh, almost a secretive figure, but everybody knew about him. Um, uh, his son, for example, was in that uh, Israeli hit in 2004 and was killed uh, then. And he's always sought revenge for the whole thing. The other thing Mike was saying about, you know, what about the politics of all this? Well, Obama, um, when he's inaugurated on the 21st of January, the following day, uh, there's a general election in, in, in Israel, which Netanyahu called. Netanyahu was, getting, was under tremendous pressure to do exactly this. Instead of taking out the sites, and they've taken out good sites, they've taken out sites of command and control centers, uh, storage for missiles, storage for other weapon systems. But most important, uh, he was getting a lot of pressure from his own people in, in Jerusalem. Go after the servant a serpent and cut off its head because if you can cut off the head of the leadership you will disrupt it and don't forget that Hamas we, we build Hamas as the you know the almost an evil part of the Gaza two things about this a lot of people people in the streets in the houses in the Gaza don't like what's going on they don't want their, their uh, don't want to be attacked again and the second thing is Hamas is not entirely in control there are much stronger there are much more violent elements of Hamas actually in the Gaza and those are the people that are getting to the position they're going to start running the shop at that point yes it, uh, it, the Israelis could go in uh, they go in under this uh, defense operation they got on the moment called Bill pillar of defense and then what happens elsewhere the Israelis start to say, right, we've got to go in. Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, they start hitting the, the Lebanese-Israeli border. The Israelis have to divert troops to it. Syria goes up on the Golan. The Golani Brigade has been reinforced at the moment by an extra battalion and reserves. Uh, they won't do anything, but it occupies them, and they can't keep their eye on the main ball, which is the Gaza. So, so Professor Clark, what are the consequences for, for the rest and the spillover to the rest of the Middle East? If this becomes a, a, a militarized crisis over the next uh, month or so, uh, or even an Israeli incursion into Gaza, then it will certainly it will create extra radicalization in the Syria. In the case of what's happening in Syria, Syria is already a civil war which is uh, running out of control. Um, there is a serious danger that the Levant, in general, from the coast right through to, the, in a sense, the east of Iraq, um, will blow up. I mean, that, that's already a danger. Um, any Israeli incursion into Gaza <clears throat> will make that much more, much more likely because it will increase the sense of uh, radical contagion from one theater to another. Some will say, of course, well, that will preoccupy the Israelis and take their minds off I Iran, but I don't think it will, because it will actually give Iran a bit more leverage with Hamas, which it, which it has lost quite a lot of recently, and also with Hezbollah in Lebanon. So it certainly won't be a constructive move. Gentlemen, stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The Royal Navy's flagship HMS Bulwark is leading a major exercise in the Mediterranean. Exercise Albanian Lion is the latest in a series of exercises where the Royal Navy has worked with other nations as part of a major new task group. Our reporter Jeff Mead is on board HMS Bulwark and we can speak to him now. Hi Jeff, tell us a bit more about this exercise. Well, we're coming to the end of what has been a significant uh, three-month exercise involving some uh, 3,000 sailors, marines, uh, Army Air Corps, uh, Apache contingents, and uh, RF uh, Chinook. So it's been a truly tri-service operation. It's drawing towards its end now. It's in its final weeks, and Bulwark will be... Uh, 
back in, in harbour in Plymouth by the end of this month. But the final stage, uh, I'm here uh, on board Bullwark in uh, Vlor Bay, uh, about three hours uh, north of the Albanian capital, Tirana. And uh, she's being used today uh, to get the Royal Marines, in a sense, helping them get back into their core skill. Um, 40 Commando is currently deployed in Afghanistan. They, their rule mark was this autumn. Um, but they will be the last Royal Marines to deploy in force into an Operation Herrick because that, as we know, is coming to an end. So the Navy is saying, well, what are we going to do with the Marines? And how are we going to get them back to their, their, their real core amphibious warfare skills? They've become very adept at, uh, at tracking and chasing insurgents across the desert. Uh, what they need to do now is revisit and reshape themselves, if you like, for their amphibious skills. So working with the Albanian Navy, who are providing the enemy by uh, uh, operating fast patrol boats, uh, the Royal Marines have been getting back to what they, what they know and what they used to do best, uh, defending ships at sea and also prosecuting uh, offensive operations uh, from sea to land. And interesting today, Kate, they've been using live firing uh, heavy weapons, general purpose machine guns, 30 caliber guns. Uh, to fire on an uninhabited island uh, south of here. And that simply is uh, a technique, a, a rehearsal, that they cannot practice virtually anywhere in the UK because our, our coastline is too crowded. It would be simply too dangerous. They actually have to go down to the Falklands to, to rehearse that kind of operation. So this is opening up a, an area of European cooperation with small NATO members like Albania, which the Navy is increasingly going to explore as it looks to mount multinational operations. And Jeff, the task group has been heading eastwards along the Mediterranean since the beginning of October. Could you see these ships becoming involved in anything more serious should the need arise? Well, there's a question you've got to get an answer to, Kate. Um, officially, we're told this exercise was long planned. Uh, it does not respond or, or uh, is re it does not refer in any way to uh, current political tensions. The fact remains, of course, the ships are still here, and that much nearer to potential trouble spots should they be, need they be needed. I think, in reality, that's unlikely. Uh, the task force, when it started uh, back at the end of September, uh, had six uh, Royal Navy warships. Uh, it's now reduced to three, one of those Royal Fleet Auxiliary. So its size is reducing, its power is diminishing, and I think this exercise is coming to an end. It would have to take quite a major uh, political upheaval for it to be deployed in anger. Although I should say that this morning also, while the Royal Marines were practicing their live-firing uh, assault on a hostile beach, uh, other elements of, uh, of the Corps uh, were practicing ex extracting uh, UK civilians uh, from, from an, a, an area of insurgency. So, you know, as the Navy likes to say, they remain ready for anything. Um, I was just thinking, Jeff, we've been talking earlier on about uh, General Richards and saying what the forces can do and cannot do. What was it, 3,000 RN and Royal Marines, uh, fixed wing, few Chinooks, etc.? I reckon that's about the size of the force projection for an amphibious operation. That's about all the Navy could actually get its act together to do, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a very a, a, a very germane ob observation. And, of course, this task, which was set up under SDSR, basically replaces... We used to have carrier strike, we used to have fast jets. Uh, they no longer apply. Re in reality, we've got the, the wherewithal uh, to put a, a modest uh, a, a force ashore. 
uh, and sustain them there for about 28 days, no more than that. All right, BFBS reporter Jeff Mead reporting from HMS Bulwark. Thank you very much for your time. It's nearly a week since the head of the CIA, General David Petraeus, was forced to resign over his affair with his biographer. The scandal surrounding David Petraeus has led to the head of US troops in Afghanistan, General John Allen, being investigated for improper conduct. Um, Professor Michael Clark um, is still with us. Is Petraeus a great loss to the US defence and security? Yes, he is. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone who knows him or worked with him would doubt that he's a very clear and incisive strategic thinker, whether you, you, know, you can disagree with some of the things that have been done. But, uh, in fact, he, he always had a, a, a way of blending the strategic with the tactical, and he was a very political general, he always, by which I mean he always understood the political side of what he did, and he was a very good politician himself as a general. The word from the CIA over the last year, when, since he's been director of the CIA, is that he's impressed everybody, that he, w he understood the briefs very well, that he, uh, whenever he appeared in front of congressional committees, uh, he was extremely impressive, he was on top of the material, and of course he was due to appear before Congress this week uh, on the Benghazi uh, issue, whether the CIA was culpable in allowing uh, the ambassador to be killed in Benghazi. So, uh, I mean, I think he is a, he is a loss, uh, and, uh, I mean, a number of people in the United Kingdom that I've been speaking to in the last week, um, you know, shake their heads in wonder and they say, how could this have been handled so badly? You know, how, how does this hit the press in the way that it did, at the time that it did, so that they have lost a very good director of the CIA and one of the really good strategic thinkers at the heart of US government? And the point has been made, if this had happened in France, it had been on track for the presidency by now. <laughs> Michael Evans is the Washington correspondent for The Times and he joins us now. Michael Evans, did Petraeus have to resign? I, th I think he probably did, actually. Um, uh, well, I think he did for his own personal reasons, because he's that sort of guy that he felt he'd acted dishonourably, and therefore the only honourable thing was to resign. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot more to come out from this. I mean, this is a, a love affair, OK, uh, but it has involved uh, a number of other... Uh, ingredients, shall we say, which include uh, how this woman managed to acquire a considerable amount of classified information, not least of which was the movements of uh, uh, Petraeus and also General John Allen, the Afghanistan the commander in Afghanistan. So she seemed to be aware of a lot of things which she shouldn't have been aware of. And what has been the reaction of the American people to this story? Uh, I... I think I think most people uh, are shocked, obviously, but I think probably they feel that the resignation was inevitable. Uh, I don't think there are many voices saying this guy is so brilliant that he should have uh, he should have stayed in his post. Uh, although I'm sure allies are, are saying that he was unquestionably and is unquestionably a brilliant leader, and his loss is huge. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he's made this huge mistake and, as a result, felt that he needed to resign. And I think most people, most people in Congress, anyway, uh, uh, believe that that's the right thing to do. And, Christopher, what is the relationship between America and its generals? Is it a bit of a love-hate thing? Um, it's interesting that the military in... In, in the United States, unlike in the, say, in the United Kingdom, there is no social cachet of the, uh, for the military. Uh, you know, you don't get sort of colonels running the parish council as you do in the United Kingdom when they've sort of retired. But it goes back, doesn't it? It goes back to the Civil War. Uh, the big names in American history are sort of General Jackson, I would add General Lee, of course. Um, but in more modern <laughs> times, Eisenhower, uh, he, was, he became president. Uh, even more than that, Colin Powell, 
uh, and uh, Alexander Haig, they became secretaries of state. They, they, their knowledge, their presence, their honourability, if that's the right thing, uh, they would be very, very important to, to, the, uh, to the American people. But once they've done the gig, once they're out of uniform... They don't have that sort of, uh, you know, the sort of the Guthrie, the Dannett, uh, the stirrup sort of uh, cashier that, 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 that say, the, the British military have. I mean, people don't tend not to listen to them after they've gone. And um, Professor Clark, how do you see the future looking for General John Allen, the US, top US commander in Afghanistan? We'll see. I mean, he obviously doesn't feel that he should resign. Um, he, and he has support at the moment, doesn't he? Does, he does. He has a lot of support, again, because uh, he's, a, he's a tough uh, general who is well-respected. I mean, like, like Stan McChrystal, um, he's regarded as the right man. He's a Marine. Um, and it's not clear what the content of all these emails that he uh, deposited into his friend in Tampa really are. And, and, it, and if some of them were a bit flirtatious, does that mean, mean that they were entirely inappropriate? I mean, there's a lot to understand or a lot to come out about the relationship between him and his family and the family of uh, Jill Kelly, this lady in Tampa. Um, so at the moment, I mean, I think he, he is on hold until a bit more is revealed. I'm sure, like uh, David Petraeus, if he feels that he is condemned by that behaviour, I, I think he will go. But I, the fact that he hasn't gone indicates to me that he, uh, he feels that actually when it comes out it will be revealed as uh, if unwise but not a tremendous indiscretion. Very briefly, Michael Evans, um, suggestions that there is a lot more uh, to this story than we've seen so far. Do you get that feeling? I do to a certain extent, although I noticed overnight uh, Panetta has said that uh, there are no other generals or other officers involved as far as he knows. <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, I think there is more to come. I think uh, both the White House and the Pentagon and NATO, actually, are desperate for General John Allen not to resign, not to be caught up in it, and for him to take over the top job in NATO uh, next year as Supreme Allied Commander. They, they desperately want him to do that. But uh, it's still a question mark, and nobody really knows the contents of these emails. Mm. And I think there is more to come. Michael Evans in Washington, thanks for your time today. Also, Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time. Just before we go, Christopher, um, China, very briefly, uh, big changes there. How is that going to impact on us? But, uh, well, it's for the next 10 years. And that's the, uh, Xi Jinping, who is going to be the new head of China, at a time when China is going to be undoubtedly the great superpower, which is why President Obama and his people, advised by David Petraeus, of course, is putting most of their military emphasis in the Far East. And there we must leave it. My thanks to all our guests this week. We'll be back the same time next week. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now.